The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. reading this morning from Paul's letter to the Philippians. We began to study last time and intend to continue with this now for a few months. Philippians chapter 1, a short passage with a comprehensive but very penetrating thought in it today. As we read of Paul, the prisoner, interpreting his chains. Philippians 1, 12 through 18. The apostle writes, now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached And because of this, I rejoice. This is the Word of God. A week ago, I brought a Sunday school class lesson to a class on the life and influence of Jonathan Edwards about the life of his friend, the Reverend David Brainerd. You may not know that as a young man in the early 1740s, David Brainerd was a student at Yale College, as it was called then, And he was, although a Christian, although a well-behaved, upright man, he was expelled from Yale. That happened for a happenstance remark that he made, unfortunate, something he shouldn't have said, but something the president of the college was grieved about and put him out of the school despite an apology. Well, it is thought that Brainerd, the young man preparing for the ministry, was so humbled by that experience and really sought as to how God would would use that unfortunate experience that it influenced his decision to, instead of becoming a settled pastor of a normal congregation somewhere in Connecticut or New England, he went to be one of the first missionaries to Indian tribes of the northeastern states. And you may know that the story of Brainerd's rather short missionary life, dying before he was 30, through his journals, became an an absolute inspiration to many hundreds of thousands of people over the years since then, and, and certainly have acted to help many missionaries persevere in dark and difficult works for God, all because of a college student's careless remark. 
Back in 1967, a new high school graduate, 18 years of age, was swimming with her friends and dove into waters in the in Maryland area near the Chesapeake Bay, and she broke her neck. Who knows what Johnny Erickson's life might have been like without that tragic accident? She undoubtedly would have been a a wife, a mother, perhaps had a career. Possibly she would have written books. I have no idea, but we do know that because of her accident, thousands upon thousands of people have been mobilized to understand the plight of the disabled in this country and have a ministry to these folks as the wheelchair in which Johnny has lived for 40 years has become a platform for the influence of the gospel. I just heard some of you may not know that just the other day our own Dr. Walt Mueller, very widely used and capable and gifted man in our congregation, has had a bicycle accident and has broken a number of ribs and punctured his lung and broke his collarbone. Walt is certainly going to be set back for a little while, but thank God he's not more seriously hurt. How will God use that? to an advantage for the gospel in his life. And I ask you, is there something that you might think of in your life that has exerted a major effect on the course of everything that has happened to you since it took place? Something that has changed your early dreams or aspirations? Maybe a bad decision you made that went really wrong. A great financial reversal, the loss of a job, an accident, an illness, a death in the family, a divorce? What is it that you would say, if I could go back and reverse or rewrite my life's course, I would make blank come out differently? If you can fill something in that, I want to ask you today to think about the work that God has done in your life and maybe is still doing in your life because of that thing, that negative happenstance, rather than just in spite of it. Last week, we started exploring this New Testament letter, and you know well, perhaps, that Paul the Apostle was in prison, almost certainly in Rome. There's a little debate about that. Some think he was imprisoned elsewhere, but the circumstances fit Rome. And this prisoner writes to his beloved friends in Philippi, And he says, I want to talk to you about joy. Not writing from a circumstance in which there was any natural reason at all to be joyful. And he is teaching us that you and I will never grasp what it is he was talking about. This unique joy that is called Christian discipleship. While we sit in an easy chair, sifting through our fingers the blessings of God and saying, oh, let me recount all the good things God has done for me. Oh, how God has blessed me. It's just wonderful. Paul found that the greatest joy came from seeing how God ruled in his life in terrible circumstances. He was under pressure, tremendous pressure, like heavy hands were pressing him down, and yet he was ready to interpret that those hands were the hands of the great potter, his father in heaven, shaping him into a vessel for honor. 
Our text today in Philippians 12, 1 to 8, or 12 to, Philippians 1, 12 to 18, divides up in two parts. First of all, you see verses 12 to 14, and there's the main thrust, I think, where Paul talks about the gospel advancing in the most unlikely of circumstances. You see, these friends in Philippi had sent a man, his name was Epaphroditus, he's mentioned in chapter 4. They sent him to say, go find out what happened to Paul, because Paul had dropped off the map. For several years, nobody had had word of him. There was no immediate communication. If you didn't get a letter or some reliable report, you didn't know, what did, where did Paul go? And what happened? And so Paul is going to tell them, or at least relate some of what happened to me and what it all comes down to. You could fill in his tale if you were to go to Acts 21 and read from there through the end of the book of Acts in verse chapter 28. You see, Paul had been in Jerusalem. People who were against him, accused him of all kinds of false things, started a riot, got him arrested, and incited the Roman authorities enough to throw him in jail and make inquiries. Well, They had no valid charge, so they said, let's send him to somebody else. And the politicians dithered and worked things around, and there was an assassination plot against Paul, which didn't succeed. They took him up to Caesarea on the coast, and he spent two years in jail there just because the politicians couldn't decide how to handle this hot potato. And the book of Acts ends with Paul having appealed to those officials, all acting out of their own self-interest, not in the interest of justice, and said, I'm a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. So they said, to Caesar, you'll go. They sent him across the Mediterranean Sea. He got into a terrible northeaster storm. He and the whole crew survived. Finally, he came to Rome, and Acts ends with Paul under what seems to be called a house arrest in Rome, awaiting a hearing. Now we believe he's had the hearing, and he's awaiting the verdict. Now, if these were your circumstances, with your freedom at an end, with your plans all circumscribed by someone else, and I came to you and said, how are you doing? Would you give me an upbeat answer? Well, Paul's answer in this whole letter is, let me tell you, what has happened to me, everything that has happened to me, has really served to advance the gospel, and I'm joyful. You see, there are two absolutely opposite ways you can view and react to the things that God providentially allows in your life. The one is what I would call the sour-spirited agnostic view. God allows something really painful, really tragic, I wouldn't diminish the tragedy, in your life. So you react by saying, well, I can't believe in a God who, fill in the blank, Allowed mom to die of that terrible cancer. Allowed my daughter to have five miscarriages in a row. Let my child be born with this terrible handicap. I can't believe in the goodness and power of that God. And so trouble and tragedy and God not writing the script of your life the way you would have written it becomes your platform to say, I'm sorry, God isn't the God that you claim he is. And all of you know people who react that way, don't you? I wonder if there's somebody listening to me who, in fact, thinks that way right now. 
But here's Paul in a very different posture, and it wasn't because he didn't have too much hardship in his life. As a matter of fact, I would say Paul had more misfortunes, more tragedies, more injustices, more bitter suffering than just about anybody you could ever think of. And yet this man, who had been persecuted and lied about and mistreated, is not fixated on what's happening to poor little old me. There's a little line of poetry. It's not great poetry, but it conveys a noble truth. It says, two prisoners looked out through the same bars. Some saw, or one saw, only mud. The other saw stars. That little bit of doggerel has quite a truth in it, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul looked out the window of a jail and didn't see the mud. He saw the stars. Because he saw what God was splendidly accomplishing in making Christ known through the circumstances he was in. He wasn't looking at his own comfort level and saying, this flea-bitten hole that I'm stuck in is a deterrent to everything I ever wanted to do. I can't believe the justice of God would let this happen. One writer says he held up his wrist from which there was a chain, and instead of saying, look at this chain, isn't it awful? He looked right past the chain and said, look! Look what God is doing with the links of this chain tying me to others who can hear about my glorious Lord Jesus. Not for a minute did Paul think everyone had forgotten him or God had failed him. He refused to demand from God an explanation for the mystery of these circumstances that were going on. Instead, he looked at the circumstances with great realism and marveled at how God was writing this unexpected story with his life, and yet his kingdom and his purposes were advancing. How do you explain that? I can only explain it that this man at some time considerably prior to this had stepped off the throne of his life and had acknowledged Christ as being on the throne of his life. And so it was Christ that mattered above all. The Praetorian Guard, as it is called, the Palace Guard, the NIV calls it, we know about these folks. These, these actually were the army rangers or the navy seals of their day. They were 9,000 Roman troops in number. They were privileged soldiers. It was a high ambition to belong to the Praetorian Guard. One reason was you got paid double pay. But they were the best. They were Caesar's crack troops. Well, one of the duties they had didn't involve so much military prowess, but it involved taking personal responsibility for Caesar's special prisoners. And Paul was on that list. And so here he was with an army ranger, so to speak, or a Navy SEAL, I've got to be fair to both branches here, uh, chained to his wrist 24-7, probably in four-hour shifts. Imagine how many men over the period of a year or two years were exposed to Paul. They got to know him. They talked to him. They heard him talk to others. They heard him teach others. They heard him talk about Christ and the cross and the resurrection. They couldn't avoid it. Here was Paul, by the providence of God, in prison, accomplishing something that Paul, outside of prison, never could have done. What an evangelistic platform. God engineered it. Paul didn't. And God was penetrating the crack troops of Rome. 
The gospel wasn't just going to the poor, the fringe people of Rome. It was going to the military elite of Rome. You might want to ask who was actually guarding whom in this situation. God was doing a marvelous thing. Now, our text advances this in a second but similar point in verses 15 to 18, where the apostle goes on and asserts that Christ can actually be effectively proclaimed by the most surprising of voices. He writes, he says, about people who, quote, preach Christ out of envy or rivalry or even by selfish ambition. But what does that matter as long as Christ is preached? These were not heretics. If they were, Paul would not have talked about them so gently because we know what he says about heretics on other occasions. He blasts them. He calls them dogs and scum and all kinds of nasty things if they do not uphold the biblical gospel and the biblical Christ. These are people who apparently are speaking in some true way of Christ, but they're doing it with a selfish agenda. One commentator, I think, captured it well when he said these people are not anti-Christ, but they probably were anti-Paul. They were glad to have Paul out of the way. They were glad that their influence could expand a little bit, and, and they could get some credit for something with Paul not there. And maybe they just wanted to assert some doctrinal emphasis that that was peculiar to them that Paul wouldn't have said. Years ago, I remember a, man, a woman I met my age named Joyce. And I got to know Joyce, and I was very impressed with her. I was very impressed with her Christianity. She was a quiet, humble woman of Scripture. She served in the church, not asking for credit, and seemed to really know the Lord and pray fervently. And one time I had occasion to hear her testimony, and I was floored. When Joyce, with, with a little tinge of embarrassment, said, well, with a laugh, she said, you're going to laugh when I tell you how I first came to hear the gospel and came to Christ. It was through watching TV and the ministry of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Now, you who are real young people, that maybe that isn't meaningful, but Jim and Tammy Faye, before their silly empire came cascading down in the 80s, were probably represented the worst of the worst of televangelism. All out for money and, and fame and get rich and everything else. And I wondered to myself, could Joyce really know Christ through that? How could she have come to the gospel through Jim and Tammy Faye? But then I had to correct myself and say, wait a minute, it's not the messenger, it's the message. She heard the power of God through this strange way. Glory to God. Now, anyone who's in ministry today can tell you there's all kinds of pride and selfishness and ego games that, that go on in the ministry. I will admit my, my fellow pastors across the land are, are men whose egos are often very shallow and very fragile. They're worried all the time. How big is my church? How big is your church? What's going on? Who's growing? I'm not. Let me tell you, there are all kinds of games that go on. And yet, God is saying here, it's not the messenger, it's not the purity of his doctrine. If he's making Christ known, the power of the gospel belongs to God and works by his direction and his sovereignty alone. And wherever Christ is being preached, you should rejoice. Now, what can we take in conclusion from this text? I have less time this morning, and as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, What application would we see? You're not preachers. You're not in jail. 
So it wouldn't seem perhaps like this applies to you. You're not apostles. None of us are. But maybe God is saying someone here today needs a viewpoint adjustment about why it is the providence of God has permitted certain things to come to pass in your life that you see as completely unfavorable or even tragic. An illness, a limitation, a handicap, the loss of a job, in a more serious vein, a death, a divorce. And you'd say, wow, how different my life would be if that had not occurred. Can we wear the lens of faith along with Paul to see that both in us and through us, God's grace is being worked out in the stressful events, the painful circumstances, the things he allows and designs to come into our lives, and that his purposes would not be worked out in any other way than this way? He works not just in spite of, but even through adverse circumstances. Do you need proof of that when you have the historic, horrifying, ugly cross as the place where he sent his son to work out redemption for the world? Do you remember the words of Joseph at the end of Genesis after he'd gone through all of his painful trial of many years? He came to the point where as second in power in Egypt, and believe you me, that meant power. Joseph's brothers who wanted to murder him were in his presence. They were under his thumb. He could have done anything with them, and nobody would have questioned him. He could have killed every one of them on the spot. And Joseph said, brothers, you meant it to me for evil. God meant it for good to bring about the winning or the saving of many lives. I'm glad he added that last part. It wasn't just his personal picture, you see. He wasn't just saying, okay, I thought it was terrible, but but now it's good. But it's not only good for me. God has done a great, vast work because of it, saving the lives of thousands of people. We always say, if only God would heal me of this sickness, if he would only straighten out this situation, if he only had not let that happen. Ladies and gentlemen, perhaps we need to learn more about how to adorn the cross than to avoid the cross. Could we begin to patiently pray, Father, how is this situation in my life that you've allowed your best for me. It's not what I wanted. I don't even see why you let it happen. I don't really understand it. There are great mysteries involved, but in the midst of it, would you show me how to put one foot in front of the other and go forward for your glory? If God allowed a Christian to die an agonizing death from cancer, Some would rail and say, what a waste, how terrible. But possibly in the providence of God, he would be saying, I'm going to show how one of my children of the resurrection dies differently with a glorious difference from anybody else of the worldly people who have no hope as we ponder God's providential oversight of our lives, it's not about demanding explanations. 
You can do that if you want. I haven't gotten the explanation, and until I do, my fist is raised to heaven. Go ahead. You'll live an angry life, and you'll die in your unresolved anger. Or you can open your hands to heaven and say, Father, I don't understand. It's not what I would have done, but your will be done. Give me the grace to live. As you sent your son to that horrible cross with a great purpose, advance your gospel somehow through the pains and the stresses that are in my life today. You might ask your God, I wonder what you're doing, Lord. I wonder how you're going to get glory. I don't see it yet, but show me and help me. So that along with Paul, we too might come to say, well, what then? What then? What is this suffering? In in the light of eternity, what is this thing that is so awful in my life? The important thing is that in every way, Christ is made known. Christ is glorified. And in that, I, too, will rejoice. Our Father, there are real things in lives here habits and temptations and disappointments, things that people are saying, my life can never be much because of this or that. And there was Paul, who could have done so much in those four years or so that he was tied up in jail cells. But you said, I'm going to do more with you, Paul, in jail than out of jail. Teach us not to comprehend your purposes, but to trust in them and to trust you that you might be glorified and praised through Jesus Christ. Amen.